give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Okay. Um, good day to you. It's Friday. It's the 23rd of April, 2021. You're lucky to be with us. Give the people what they want with Zoe from People's Dispatch. Prashant from People's Dispatch, myself, Vijay from Globetrotter, bringing you in half an hour the most important things you need to know happen this week in the world. That's why you join us at Give the People What They Want, YouTube, Facebook, on you know Spotify, podcasting. We do the lot because we're interested in getting you information. Not so... Not so the Foreign Ministry of Peru. The Foreign Ministry of Peru, my friends, has decided recently that not only should foreigners not take an interest in the Peruvian presidential elections, where Pedro Castillo, the candidate of the left, is ahead of um, Madame Fujimori, the uh, candidate of the right, not only does the Peruvian foreign, foreign ministry say that we should have no uh, inform we shouldn't talk about the peruvian election but we should have no opinions about it either we should have no opinions about it either sorry to tell the peruvian foreign ministry but at give the people what they want we talk about anything we'd like and we have opinions about lots of things including on the very fine country of peru we're not going to start in peru today we're going to go to the epicenter of COVID-19. We're going to go not to the United States, not to Brazil, but to India, where COVID-19 is on what? They call it a second wave. Is it a third wave, fourth wave? Are there any waves any longer, Prashant? What's happening in India? Right, Vijay. It's, uh, it's, it's really difficult to describe it because what we see is a complete collapse. And I think some of the, sign, the signs of a complete collapse of a system are when basically people are left to fend for themselves. And that is complete, exactly what we're seeing. A very small example, of course, is on many of our timelines on social media where we, sit, where we see desperate appeals and desperate attempts to get aid and desperate attempts to get something as basic as oxygen. I mean, we are living in 2021. We are living in a country which boasts of being a teacher to the world. Uh, that's the preferred, uh, say, moniker that uh, what do you, the right-wing government and its, uh, and its leaders say that India is a teacher to the world. What we're seeing is people desperately struggling to access oxygen. And it's not only people, it's even hospitals. Oxygen now has become one of the, uh, say, the, the, a, a key point in the issue because courts are intervening, hospitals are issuing some of the biggest hospitals in the country, in fact, issuing urgent appeals saying that they are going to run out of oxy oxygen in maybe less than an hour. We have two hours of oxygen left. And this, we're of course talking about the metros, by the way. This, we're talking about people who have access to social media, people who are that way relatively far more privileged. 
So the true extent of the crisis is much, much, much worse. And the numbers are, of course, shocking. And there's been a, I, mean, I think this is now caught global media attention. Also, we're seeing daily cases in the range of 300,000. So it's clearly the highest number of cases being reported in a single day, not only now, but throughout the course of the epidemic. We are seeing deaths in the range of uh, 2,000 and above that's taking place. And all this has happened, uh, say, just a few months after across the spectrum, people in India and especially the government who should have known better, the governing authorities were confident that the pandemic had been beaten. So we had this phase in February where we were reporting maybe around 10,000 cases countrywide. And around that time, there was great national rejoicing at the fact that COVID-19 had been whipped and we had once again shown the path to the world. And now we are in April where there is uh, there are no beds, there are no ventilators, there is no oxygen, like I said. And uh, people are, like I said, people are appealing for help in whatever way they can find through friends, through, uh, you know, associations or online. So that's where we are right now. And this is, uh, I mean, the extent of the failure is truly shocking because I think one of the things we've talked about when we've, when we've discussed second waves or third waves or fourth waves in countries across the world is the sheer failure of governments to take precautions, to create the kind of infrastructure that is needed to deal with an issue like this. And in India's case, it has been absolutely no different. There have been reports about how, uh, you know, oxygen plants were commissioned in many hospitals. Many months after the crisis peaked, there was, the crisis began, there was an attempt to say the tenders were called for these plants, but very few of them have been set up. And today we are staring at this crisis. Uh, India's own vaccination drive, the, which, which it was, you know, flaunting, which it was claiming as again, as again a gift to the world, also going to face crisis because of shortages. So, I mean, across board, we are seeing the result of multiple failures of complacency. At the very basic level, this boils down to a government which throughout, over the, uh, from the beginning of the year especially, gave all sorts of signals that the worst of the crisis was over and that we basically won. So there were religious functions, religious gatherings in which hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people participated, which were allowed. There was an eight-phase election in one state, which was unprecedented, and which many have said that was an uh, was an attempt to set the stage for the ruling BJP to win in that state. That's West Bengal, and throughout the impression that was given was that you know the worst is over, and this is where we are right now, and uh, it's uh, it's deeply depressing and disappointing because you know you see that uh say the, the at the last year we saw examples for instance of china where the pandemic broke out in wuhan there were hospitals built uh in a jiffy you know the entire infrastructure of the state was mobilized and here we have one year after the crisis broke out the last peak of the crisis was maybe in september where we were where we just about touched hundred thousand daily cases and even after that we seem to have been completely un we seem to have been completely unprepared and the government's response at various, in various ways has been to blame the people again. So on, at one level, it's the irresponsibility of the people. And it's like a double blow on those who are already struggling to, you know, find these resources, to find a space for their loved ones to at least get some basic treatment. So that's the kind of response that has been there. And it's important also to note that these numbers are right now very suspect in many places. There have been multiple reports. I mean, global media again, a lot of photos of burning pyres and symmetries. 
And of course, uh, what this also reveals is the fact that there have been reports of places where, say, maybe a hundred deaths have taken place, but the official count is maybe five or in single digits. So there's also the fact that we do not know the full extent of what is happening right now, the extent of the crisis, because India obviously being a vast country, lot of, uh, say, a lot of uh, reporting completely getting skewed. So there is this bulk of issues, all of which boils down to the fact that uh, despite the fact that there should have been uh, preparations made, none were made, complacency all around the board. And I think the worst part is we don't even really know when this crisis is going to get over because models like you know in the past one year uh, likely to fail at various points. There are models which say that we are going to peak say somewhere in the second week of May at astounding say 3.3 million active cases at a time. So. We, uh, at least in the short run, uh, no relief, it seems. And uh, really, it's a very unfortunate situation when people are left to ultimately defend for themselves. You know, NewsClick, um, NewsClick.in has written a lot of stories uh, on on this, uh, you know, the explosion of COVID-19 in India. They did a story just to refer to what you talked about earlier on um, the oxygen plants not built in Madhya Pradesh and so on. Meanwhile, of course, in the left-led uh, government in Kerala, we saw the Kerala government put a lot of emphasis in building oxygen capacity. Kerala, of course, now exporting oxygen to Goa, to Tamil Nadu, to Karnataka, to neighboring states. Um, you see the difference, Prashant, between the central government in New Delhi led by Mr. Narendra Modi, a completely callous attitude, it seems to me, towards building infrastructure. Um, you know, promises made, as you said, for oxygen and for vaccines. Kerala, small state, 35 million people, most likely the left will get re-elected. But in Kerala, they've been exporting uh, oxygen. And the prime minister said something interesting. He said, we will not go back on our promises. And what he's referring to is, vaccines in Kerala will be free to the public. And what I heard recently, Prashant, was that people getting free vaccines in Kerala were donating money, saying we want to donate money to the state because the Serum Institute of India has jacked up prices. We've talked about on this show, we've talked about, in a sense, pandemic profiteering, the profits made by companies during this pandemic, scandalous behavior. Serum Institute of India sounds like a public sector entity. In fact, it's not. It's a, it's a private entity. Uh, the family is slated to make a great deal of money on this. Um, vaccine injections up to 400 rupees a shot when they were 150 rupees a shot jacked up prices. Ridiculous situation in India almost as ridiculous as in Brazil, and we'll come back to vaccines and the WTO in a minute, but almost, uh, you know, a replication of what's happening in Brazil. India on the one side collapsing under COVID-19, but really, when they talk about an Indian variant, the Indian variant is the privatization of the economy. That's the real variant. It may not be the sequenced, uh, you know, COVID is that different. The privatization of the economy mirrored in Brazil. Brazil ready to have a million cases, Zoe. What's, what do we look for in the story in Brazil now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, it's a lot of bad news right now. Um, both India and Brazil are, you know, rapidly 
Of course, the U.S. still holds first place in terms of numbers of deaths with over, you know, 570,000. Um, Brazil is getting up there and it has, I mean, today the latest numbers are 383,000 uh, confirmed deaths and over 14 million cases. Um, and this has, I, we talked about waves. Brazil has not had a first wave, a second wave, a third wave. It's just had a consistent increasing not subsiding uh, kind of increase since March of last year. It really hasn't, in no point throughout the pandemic, has Brazil been able to control, I mean, maybe like short plateaus in certain regions, in certain states. But as a country, it's just been nonstop. I mean, when we talk about oxygen, you know, two months ago was when the Manaus oxygen crisis happened. And now Brazil is in the worst stage of the pandemic. I mean, we're seeing a massive increase in, in deaths. Uh, there was a recent study that was conducted by an independent um, researcher from Russia and, uh, you know, our comrades from Brasil de Fato, Michelle de Mayo. Uh, she wrote a, a report on these, on these numbers and it, it shows three models about COVID numbers in Brazil. And the last one, the third model is extremely worrying and it shows that by the end of, by October 2021, Brazil could reach, if it continues at the rate it is, which means uncontrolled, I mean, lack of restrictions, slow vaccination, emergence of new variants, they could reach 1 million deaths by October 2021. And I mean, this is, this is horrible. This is horrifying. And I think it's really important to point out that Jair Bolsonaro, as we've mentioned several times on this show, similar to Narendra Modi and the BJP-led government in India, has just not taken any measures, has actually, in Brazil, we've seen the case of him blocking the approval of certain vaccines under pressure from the United States. So, of course, the Sputnik vaccine, some of, I think, a couple of the Chinese vaccines have been approved there. But, I mean, there's just been resistance to even getting the vaccination process underway. They're not receiving as many COVAX doses in the time that they had foreseen I mean, it's just a situation of other crisis. We're going to talk about, of course, the patent waivers. But even without the patent waivers, you know, they just haven't done what has needed to be done to be able to control this. Um, you know, restriction measures are not in place. You know, you, a government that from day one has denied the existence and the severity of this crisis, of course, we're going to be in this situation. And I mean, every day we're seeing more and more militants, more and more left leaders intellectuals from our movements, you know, and just so many people who are who are dying of this disease. I think another important number to mention here is that in the ICU beds in Brazilian hospitals, it's now more than 50% are young people. So this is no longer just affecting elderly people as we saw in the beginning of the pandemic. This is actually seriously affecting young people. And it's just, I mean, a really upsetting situation. And movements in Brazil are resisting for survival. I mean, they're still out on the streets getting food to people, getting basic, you know, trying to meet the basic needs of people. But it's a really, a really difficult situation as similar to what we're seeing in India. Well, it's a catastrophic situation in Brazil. One million casualties by October 2021. That's extraordinary. Um, India also fodder for the um, acceleration of this virus. Meanwhile, to some extent, there's hope that the vaccine is could become a panacea, could help. 
yes, I quite agree. 7.9 billion people on the planet. On April 12th, we got news that the first 1 billion uh, vaccines had been produced. Projection that 2 billion vaccines produced by the end of May. That's considerable progress. But, but, and here's the problem. Only point. 2% of the vaccines produced have gone to the poorer countries, to developing nations, 0.2%. Um, right now, the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros uh, Ghebreyesus, has been out there talking about, in a sense, vaccine apartheid. Doesn't use that phrase, but he's basically talking about vaccine apartheid. The new head of the WTO also happens to come from a global south country, Ngozi Okonju Iwela, uh, Iwela uh, um, Madam Okonji Okonju Iwela has said at recent times that the World Trade Organization must do more uh, to at least suspend patent uh, on these vaccines to let production capacity happen elsewhere. She's been pretty forthright about this. On the 22nd of April, WTO gathered at a virtual meeting. In fact, friends, the world, uh, United States, the United States trade representative, Catherine Tai, has also come on the record talking about the need for something like a patent waiver. Of course, she called this a market failure. It's not a market failure, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. This is how the market is supposed to work. It's not exactly a failure. Um, the market doesn't work to help people's needs. It helps to make profits, which it is doing. We talked about profiteering. On the table is the vaccine patent waiver. Even if this waiver, which is requested by India and South Africa in October, even if this waiver goes through, there is simply not enough production lines available. It tells us that once the all clear sounds in the pandemic, in fact, even now, we need public money to build public sector pharmaceutical um, you know, capacity. This is very important. It has been eroded. Pharmaceutical capacity in the public sector must be built up. I think that's something that um, Tedros has been saying repeatedly. And I got a hint of this. Um, from Ngozi Okonju Ewela um, in her comments at the WTO. I think there is going to be new appetite for thinking about the public sector as we go forward. So on the one side, friends, there's concern about patent waiver. It's back on the table. It will be discussed. Looks like even the Biden administration is asking U.S. pharmaceutical companies to allow this to happen. But once this happens, we've got to come back to a discussion about the role of the public sector. Uh, keep an eye on what the WTO does. Some hotspots around the world. Um, news coming from the vicinity of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the most beautiful places in the world. As you walk down those dark streets in old Jerusalem, you come up to this doorway. If you're a Muslim and lucky enough to go through, you're able to see the Al-Aqsa Mosque close up. Otherwise, you can see it from the side. There's a perch where you can have a look at how beautiful it is. Um, you know, uh, Prashant, what is happening again uh, near the Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem? Right. Actually, there have been days of uh, days of violence. It's not, a, it's not yesterday. There was, of course, a major incident, but this has been happening for quite a few days. There's a larger context which we'll come to in a couple of minutes. But the most recent incidents have uh, involved this uh, far-right Jewish group called Lehava, which 
you know staged this huge march yesterday carrying slogans like shout member shouting slogans like death to arabs before that an extensive campaign online you know with extremely inflammatory violent slogans against the residents of that place and i think it's a very important thing to note that these are residents of that place people who have been there for thousands of hundreds of years definitely and uh, what has what happened over the night and there's of course also the month of uh, ramadan going on uh, muslims fasting breaking their fast early in the morning and uh, launching their fast early in the morning so what we're also seeing is that uh, say you know at this moment which is particularly very important for muslims a very provocative act by uh, israeli right right wing groups you know and threatening violence and there was of course over 100 people were definitely arrested many were injured when the palestinians tried to resist this kind of brazen assault for lack of better word you know this violent provocation by israeli this israeli group but there's also a larger context to it because even the alaksa compound like you mentioned in 2019 especially we saw multiple uh, incidents of invasion by again israeli right wing right wing israeli settlers who believed that this alaksa mosque should be torn down and because it was a site of the temple of solomon and there's a very strong campaign and their actions have actually been backed by prominent israelis uh, israeli authorities and the government in civil society as well so basically what uh, this yesterday's incident i mean i suspect media reports my a lot of media reports kind of tend to look at these incidents as clashes and clashes that we are a very neutral term because both sides of course are guilty there is the neutral police which uh, you know uh, nobly steps in and tries to prevent the violence but what we're seeing is actually uh, say decades of apartheid policy decades of policy sanctioned by the highest levels of the israeli government to uh, say for lack of better word ethnically cleanse that area and this is an area of extreme importance to the palestinians living there and this kind of violence continuing without any kind of bar any kind of stop you know we keep hearing reports of clash after clash after clash so to speak but the larger question of the palestinians you know their rights being eroded by the day so that's what we're seeing right now um we're going to keep following this story because this story is important palestinian emancipation is important to us you're listening to give the people what they want coming to you from people's dispatch with zoe and prashant with globe trotter from me we're with you every week we like hearing from you we want you to tell other people about our show we don't have the money for advertising you are most loyal fans You are our advertise adver, advertisers. You have to go out there and help us bring an audience, build a build a crowd, build a crowd, as they say, build a crowd. Twenty um, second of April was the birthday of Vladimir Lenin. Also happens to be Earth Day. Must be a communist plot. This environmental thing. It must be a communist plot. That's what I hear, Zoe. I hear. that earth day the talk of climate change environmentalism must be a communist plot because they celebrate lenin's birthday what happened in brazil in bolivia yesterday during earth day um to celebrate this great communist day well i think the first thing is that people need to recognize that it is a communist day and that earth day is not a capitalist day um and i think that's kind of the one of one of the biggest takeaways from the meeting that happened in bolivia yesterday which was the reencounter with pachamama or mother earth um this was an event organized by the plurinational state of bolivia um and essentially with the objective to kind of discuss this deep 
crisis that's facing, you know, the planet, that's facing humanity, um, that's seeing, you know, capitalist exploitation and capitalist greed put above, you know, the survival of planet Earth, um, you know, unrestrained extraction of resources by multinational companies, privatization of natural resources. Um, and so there was a really important gathering that occurred uh, yesterday. Um, I mean, we saw important left intellectuals and political leaders from across the world, you know, Vandana Shiva from India, Jorge Arriaza, the foreign minister of Venezuela, of course, uh, Vice President David Choquehuanca of Bolivia and Luis Arce presided over the event. And it, it was a really important moment because at the same time, you of course had Biden's climate summit, uh, which in the morning began with a speech by Jair Bolsonaro, who outright lied and said that the Brazilian government has been taking uh, very concerted measures to stop illegal logging and illegal burning in the Amazon and the Pantanal region, which is a lie. Uh, the Br Bolsonaro government cut climate change budget by 95% when they entered office. Um, so at the same time, you have all these, you know, of course, there are other people who attended Biden's climate summit, but you have this kind of greenwashing, uh, we can, you know, save the uh, climate without changing the model. You have, you know, a different sort of gathering that discusses how capitalism itself and the system of capitalism is what's threatening the planet. And that the system where you, you know, consistently just exploit and don't consider, you know, the earth, the resources and, you know, this relationship, the balance between the earth and the people, um, you're, you're not going to, this is not a project of humanity. So, I mean, this was a really great event that was held in Bolivia, parallel to kind of this Biden uh, summit. Um, and at the same time, also, uh, you know, over 130 social movements, people's movements um, who are part of the International People's Assembly, the International Week of Anti-Imperial Struggle, actually sent a letter to this climate summit of Biden and kind of raising these same demands um, that they can't address climate change, they can't address global warming and all these threats to the planet and humanity without addressing this model and, you know, they raised a series of demands, which include, you know, protecting and supporting small peasants and farmers, communities that are, you know, in areas of danger. Of course, climate change is not just climate change. It's people being driven out of their land because of more occurring natural disasters, because of uh, resource extraction. So, I mean, I encourage people to check this out. And, you know, of course, defense of the earth and defense of nature is a key component to our struggle and that always has to remain front and center and the capitalists are never going to defend the earth they're just trying to use this discourse to you know make their project sound a little bit more humanitarian but it never will be so so maybe it's it's maybe true that when the hippies in california uh, came up with earth day on april 22nd they picked that day deliberately gary snyder allen ginsburg all of those beatnik Leninists picking Lenin's birthday for Earth Bohemian Day. Bolsheviks. Bohemian That's part Bolsheviks. of it. Um, there is a certain contempt for the planet Earth. We've seen this in Modi's comments about COVID, Bolsonaro's comments about the Amazon and COVID. I was struck when um, the um, verdict came out for the killer of George Floyd, uh, a human being, let's remember, who was killed uh, for no reason by a police officer. Um, 
the U.S. politician Nancy Pelosi gave a press conference where she talked about the sacrifice of George Floyd, the sacrifice. You'd have to have contempt for human beings to say that a murder of a person is a sacrifice. Uh, she called it a sacrifice for justice. I, I found the language quite important to focus on for a minute. There is contempt for ordinary people uh, around the world, and I found this to be a gesture of contempt. Ned Price, a spokesperson of the U.S. government, uh, just casually said that the United States is not going to uh, roll back on the Defense Production Act. Um, you see, people, you need to understand that countries around the world, India, for instance, sometimes called the pharmacy of the world, produces 60% of global vaccines accesses raw materials from the U.S. market, including solvents and plastic bags and things that you think other countries can make. But at any rate, there are at least solvents and so on, so on, access from the United States. Um, the Defense Production Act prevents U.S. companies, private companies, from exporting these particular elements, the raw materials of the vaccine, to countries like India, which can, you know, if India opens its production lines, can produce very many more vaccines than it is now. It doesn't have the raw materials to produce the vaccine. When the Biden administration was directly asked to remove Defense Production Act protections for these elements, these raw materials of the, the vaccine, Ned Price came before the cameras to say the priority of the Biden administration is to vaccinate people in the United States first and only then perhaps will they lift the protections. As a consequence of the Defense Production Act protections, India is going to, be, is going to have to stop producing vaccines in the short term, which means not only will Indians not be vaccinated, but people in other parts of the global south who would be buying vaccines from India. Plus, plus, friends, I'm making a point about contempt. Plus, plus, the United States has not yet approved the AstraZeneca vaccine. Plus, keep this in mind. Plus, just before we began, Prashant said that something like 30 million, I don't remember what the exact number is, 30 million. By, by the end of the month, 35 million doses. Yeah. By the end of the month, 35 million AstraZeneca doses will be sitting in a warehouse in the United States. United States is not willing to export this to other countries. Canada has five vaccines per head. You only need two. Why aren't they exporting it? Contempt for humanity. Contempt for humanity. I want to put that on the table. Zoe Prashant and I are reporters. We have just violated um, the statement made by the Peruvian Foreign Ministry, which says that reporters should not report about countries other than their own. They should not even have opinions about other countries. We have violated that. We reported about countries not our own um, for our show, Give the People What They Want, which we need you to go out there and promote. We've talked about things outside our countries. What, does, what right does Prashant have to talk about Palestine? What right does Zoe have to talk about Brazil? Not only do we have a right to talk about these places, but we have opinions about them, which the Peruvian foreign ministry doesn't want us to have. We have opinions. We have opinions because some people seem to have contempt for others. They have contempt and they have power. Two dangerous things to have in common. You've been listening to Give the People What They Want. 
We come to you every week on Friday, Prashant and Zoe from People's Dispatch, and I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. It's been an interesting week. Prashant, Zoe, are you in health? Yeah. For Prashant, now. We're coming back next week to talk about Chad. We'll be talking about um, Chad next week, the Sahel region. I think we'll spend some time on it. Um, we'll see you next week. Every Friday, we're here for you. Give the people what they want. Share this show. Tell people to come and listen. We rely on you. From People's Dispatch, peoplesdispatch.org and Globetrotter. Follow us. Tell us what you think. Tell us that you think that we're the best show on the planet. Thanks a lot. And stay safe.